Good morning, church. I have good news. This is the last Sunday I'm going to talk about suffering. (laughs) Has the series on suffering been a cause of suffering? That's always a possibility. I've suffered through sermons, both as someone listening to sermons and sometimes, occasionally, more often than I'd like to admit, as the one preaching the sermon. Hopefully, our four-week series on suffering has not been a source of suffering, but rather a guide faithfully, biblically, doctrinally to help you navigate suffering. Last week, I shared with you two simple ideas in response to this question that when we are suffering at our worst, nobody wants to hear the amazing pronouncement from the Bible that though the cause of our suffering may be evil, the cause of our suffering may come from no good place, God can use it and in fact is committed, is determined to use suffering to bring good things. Last week I told you that probably the main thing I wanted to help you remember, and I'm preaching to myself these days, is that suffering can help us grow in godliness. Like little else, suffering fastens the attention of the disciple. We can get used to blessings. We can get a little numb to life going well. We can act like goodness is expected. My ship has finally come in. It should have come in much earlier, but now it has come in, and life is normal. Suffering never does that. Suffering is almost always surprising. By definition, it's always painful. And what suffering most, what God wants to do in suffering is to help us grow to be more like Christ. And suffering, hurting, uncertainty, anxiety, a lack of needed things does that far more powerfully than any blessing that we can receive. The second thing I tried to share with you last week is simply this. Suffering can help us become a blessing to others. And nobody says, I hope I go through a lot so that someday I can help somebody else. But that's exactly how God works. If you have ever received wise counsel, if you have ever sat with someone who you could tell was genuinely entering into your experience, was listening to you with attentive love, who had tears in their eyes as they heard you, I can promise you without even knowing that person or that circumstance, the person whose heart was tender toward you had suffered themselves a great deal. One of the interesting things about being a pastor of a church is I get sometimes a front row seat to the suffering of other people. And I told a lady in our church before the first service started, she's going through one of the darkest valleys that anyone can. And she seemed surprised by my statement, which was heartfelt, that she's a blessing and an inspiration to me. I think she had maybe made the mistake of putting me and other pastors up on a pedestal where we know everything and have already got it all figured out. If you ever think that's the impression, that might be true at another church, but not this one. (laughs) I'm enrolled in the school of Jesus with you. I'm your fellow learner. I'm your fellow disciple. She's going through something that I have not yet experienced. I probably will someday, but I haven't gone through that yet. And to watch someone who I know from her own testimony has been someone who has worried for a lifetime, to watch her go through the most painful thing of all with peace, with a concern for others, 
with love, with faithfulness, without the short fuse that so often characterizes people who are in pain, it's genuinely been inspirational to me. She's been a blessing to me without even meaning to do so, just because of what I've been able to see. This is one of the things that God always intends to do when He guides us faithfully through suffering. Today, before we conclude this service and talk about important family business, just two more simple lessons. The first is this, suffering, like nothing else, can teach us to rely on God. Look with me, please, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, and by way of explaining this passage to me, let me forever, I hope, from this day forward, knock something out of your vocabulary and out of your collection of sayings. Christians often say, people often say, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's absolutely untrue. I'm sorry if you've said it. I probably have said it. It's a lie. It's utterly unbiblical. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, this isn't on your sheet, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says this, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. In other words, the burden that was placed upon us, that was thrown into our lives, was so heavy that we thought we were dead. We gave up on life. We thought it was the end of us. Has anybody ever had that experience? You ever thought this is the end? It happened to me about three times, all of them in Mexico, when I was a missionary with my family. And in one time, there's this thing called sensory gating. Maybe you've experienced it. It's the amazing God-given capacity of your brain to slow things down as life becomes a crisis, to give you time to think through your reactions. Anybody ever experienced that? It's kind of fascinating. Suddenly, everything's in slow motion. And that happened to me, and I was trying to save myself. And it, I had enough time, thanks to sensory gating, to think, huh, this is how it ends. I'm so young, I thought I had more time. And I even thought about my picture being up in the Missionary Hall of Honor, which is where our network of churches puts the pictures of missionaries who died on the field. I actually thought, because I'd recently walked the hall, I wonder whose picture will be next to mine on either side. Somebody who already bought the farm and somebody who's going to buy the farm sometime after I do. Now, by God's grace, that wasn't the end. The dust literally settled a few minutes later, and I was okay. But you will often be placed in situations by God's own design that you can't handle. What God wants when the suffering is that great, when the burden is that heavy, what He intends to do is to teach you to rely not on yourself, which is so easy to do, especially if you've been blessed, especially if you've been successful, especially if you've been healthy, especially if the family has had peace and harmony. If life has been good for a while, it is all too easy to kind of step back and admire your own work. And though you don't take all the credit for it, it's very, very easy to get your own heart involved and just kind of literally enjoy yourself and think, I've done this. I've been faithful. I've been prayerful. I've been humble. What a thing to think about for a second. You ever catch yourself being humble? If you ever catch yourself being humble, I have some bad news. 
Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, that he despaired of life itself and says, he said in verse 9, to drive the point home, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We thought that was it. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves. Next two words, what's it say? But on God. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Simple Garner paraphrase, we thought we were dead. But God put us in that position to teach us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely instead on Him because God is the one who raises dead men and women back to life. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely on our, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Read verse 10 with me, please. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us. Again, Paul is telling you something that he learned. And sometimes Christians are all too prone to think of Paul as the fourth person of the Trinity. This sinless person, and if Christians had avengers or superheroes, Paul would be one of them. If you read Paul carefully, he will constantly tell you of his failures, of his sinfulness, of his frailty, of his fears, and he will tell you what he learned from that suffering. Look carefully at verse 9. We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to, mark the words, make us rely not on ourselves but on God. If I take Paul seriously as an ordinary human being who was extraordinarily saved, just like other Christians, that tells me that Paul had a vein of self-reliance running through the center of his life, same as I do, same as you do. That I can figure this out. I've been here before. I've had some experience. I know people. I've learned things. I can figure this out. Mark the words carefully. That was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God. It was a painful experience for Paul. His burdens were real. Let me tell you a little bit about Paul's burdens. He details them right here in this same letter in 2 Corinthians. But if Paul were here preaching in my place, which would be better for all of us, by the way, but if he were here, we likely would have had to help him get up the steps that lead to this platform. As he raised his hands, you would have noticed that they were marked with defensive wounds because Paul was often judicially beaten. He was left for dead on more than one occasion. He was, in, he was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. He was abandoned. He was betrayed. He suffered hunger. He suffered exposure. Everything that a human being can go through that did not kill him had already happened to Paul by the time he writes this. And on one particularly painful experience, he said, this time it got so bad that we gave up on life. We despaired of life itself. But the reason God took us through that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God. That's what God wants to teach me. And I'm going through some things right now, same as you. And what I'm learning as I go through this series with you, I'm trying experientially to apply the things I'm discovering in the Bible. What I've discovered, this may be more confessional than you're used to and maybe more than it is advisable, but I'm pretty tempted to rely on myself. 
And God currently has given me a situation that is utterly beyond my control. There's literally nothing I can do to change it. And it doesn't feel good. And all my education, all my experience, all my friends, all my networks, all my prayer to this point has not budged that situation one inch. What does God want to teach me in that circumstance? To rely on Him. Don't get so focused on relief on what you're going through that you forget the greater lesson, which is to rely on God. Because relief, God can grant in an instant. He can heal, He can provide, He can change people's hearts, whatever it is that ails you, He can change that in one instant. In this personal relationship, what we are much more reluctant to do is to learn to rely on Him. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Listen to what He learned. Verse 10, read it with me. He delivered us from such a deadly peril... And he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That's the jewel that Paul took out of the furnace of suffering. God delivered us from that deadly danger. Here's what I learned. He will deliver us. Here's my commitment. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. I don't know why I've been slow to learn this lesson because I've been taught it by better men and women than I could ever be my whole life. Providentially, one of the reasons we're, my, our family is back in Huntington Beach is because around 2006, we tried to go to another country to serve there as missionaries. We left, we literally left Mexico en route somewhere else. A country that is officially closed to outsiders there's a way in, but it's risky. And in January, right after we moved from Mexico, about two weeks after we moved from Mexico, we had gone to this country. We had met a wonderful missionary family that had lived there for several years. We had a 10-day trip where we set up shop with them, made plans for our collective future, and gave all our stuff away, left Everything but books and clothes and a few pots and pans. And in January, I was in the registrar's office at Boston Baptist College. It's one of those things where you'll never forget where you were. A call comes in from my fellow missionary's father-in-law. My prospective partner who had lived successfully in this country for about three years, he told me, from his own missionary outpost in Central America, had been arrested. And what that meant was that this senior missionary's son-in-law and daughter and grandchildren, all in varying degrees of intensity, but they're all in custody. The man's in prison. The daughter's held in a much more benevolent custody, but they've got eyes on her too. She is not free to leave. She has to stay with her children, not knowing if she'll ever see her husband again. And he called to tell me this for two reasons. Bruce, we need to pray. And two, I don't think you're going to join him. Seems like the net has closed. Think that chapter's over. And I was much younger then. It shook me. I said, brother, this is terrible. He said, Bruce, 
This is a great opportunity to draw near to God. That's wisdom. His family's life was literally on the line. His son-in-law's freedom was gone. And his perspective wasn't, let's start an international incident. Let's get the hostage rescue team from our mighty strong nation over there. Let's get the United Nations involved. Maybe all of that would someday be necessary, but his immediate godly response was, this is a great opportunity to draw near to God. Please keep that in mind the next time the heat gets turned up in your own life. What God wants in your suffering, knowing that he in love and faithfulness can bring relief anytime, what he wants you to do first is to draw near to him, to not rely on yourself, but to rely on him who has the almighty power even to raise the dead. That's the first thing I have for you today. God wants us in times of trial, not only to grow godly, not only to be prepared to be a blessing to other people, but he wants us to learn how to trust in Him. Here's the final lesson and the one you have to wait on. You can learn it now and put it into practice now, but you won't get the fullness of the truth of what Paul says later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 until God fully saves you and takes you to glory. Suffering can prepare us for greater eternal rewards. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, notice we're in the same book. It's just three chapters later. Paul opened the letter by talking about an experience that to him was so painful he thought he would die. And surprisingly, he says in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. That's quite a statement. Because Paul is scarred almost certainly crippled, almost certainly half-blind. He has few friends. His family apparently has forsaken him. He's not even sure among those who preach the gospel with him who will be faithful to the end. At the end, he said, Demas has forsaken me. He begged Timothy to come to him and come to him quickly because he had been left alone and only Jesus literally stood with him. No one else was there to defend him at the end of his life. And yet he says, we do not lose heart. Paul, how is that possible? Well, he says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now that's just not normal aging. Everybody's outer self is wasting away once you hit about probably 40. Agreed? <laughs> I hit 40. My wise father-in-law said, Bruce, I have good news. If you're tired of running uphill, you're done. <laughs> it's all downhill from here. In suburban America, what most of us have to deal with is aching backs and crow's feet. Paul's outer self is wasting away through active physical brutal, emotional persecution. Our outer self is wasting away, but look, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We've learned we're getting stronger. How can that be, Paul, for this light momentary affliction? Say again. This light momentary affliction? Paul, you're financially ruined. 
By your own admission, you sometimes go hungry. You've been betrayed by your countrymen and pursued by the Gentiles. You don't have a friend anywhere that you can count on. The youngest and the best associate that you have, Timothy, is so often afraid that you tell him, I remember your tears. I want you to have courage. Paul, you're all alone. You're a physical wreck. Your life financially and physically has been ruined. There's no coming back from what you've already lost. But his testimony is that his affliction, his suffering is light and momentary. How can that be? This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The comparison point is not whether suffering on earth is real and exceedingly painful. The point of comparison is what will come from the suffering if you suffer well and faithfully. If you suffer like a Christian. If you suffer as Christ did. If you do things for Christ and you are called to suffer for them, Paul says that will be a light and momentary affliction that prepares for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How do you keep going, Paul? Verse 18, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That's the hard part. See, what suffering does, it fastens your attention on this earth. Because if your back hurts, there's no getting around it. If being a Christian has cost you relationships, you have a daily pain in your life every time you're reminded of that lost relationship. You give money for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the kingdom, it's gone. According to Jesus, it will be used. It will be stored up for you in heaven where you are told to store up your rewards. But once you give it, it's gone. It's not available for the rent. You can't use that to buy the car or to fix it. You can't use that to help the kids get through college. It's gone. That's why many Christians, when faced with big decisions, especially those that would entail some measure of suffering or loss or deprivation, can't take their eyes off the earthly, and here's the problem, they miss their reward. Paul says, verse 18, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Read the last sentence with me, please. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. Don't give your life away to temporary things. Don't make God's gifts your God instead. That's always the temptation that God will lavish good gifts into your life and that those gifts, rather than being taken as blessings from the true God, will become gods unto themselves. And that pleasure and comfort and peace in the family and the joy of relationships, all of those things that God has given become ends unto themselves, are protected at all costs, including the cost of obeying Him, and there you lose your reward. A couple weeks ago, I was with 10 other people from our church family in a very impoverished place. We met some, an amazing ministry couple there. And they gave us some very, very modest gifts that I will treasure forever. Because the things they gave us are worth less than a dollar. But they were handmade. 
and took hours to craft, and they gave us the best that they could to remember them by. And I thought to myself, you know, when, when this is all wrapped up here on earth, these people are going to be much greater in the kingdom than I ever thought about being. I'm going to mow their lawn in the millennium is what's going to happen. <laughs> Why? Because they have so little on earth and what little they have they've given to Christ. And they've welcomed limitation and suffering into their life, not because they're masochists, but because they have a heavenly vision. A running joke when my wife and I were going through tough times, a joke I would always make, and I'm not sure if she ever liked it. <laughs> Sometimes I just determine that something is worth, is worth saying and is kind of funny, and I just stick with it regardless of the audience reaction. But wouldn't we be going through something hard for the sake of the ministry and it was costing us? I would sometimes say to her, boy, I sure hope this counts. I hope this is moving the ledger up in heaven. And I don't want you to think for a moment that heavenly rewards are not worth keeping in view. There's this terrible idea that is not at all biblical. It's actually contrary to what Jesus taught and what Paul taught, that if you desire a reward, you'll never get it. The Christian invitation is much different. It's not to forget rewards, but rather to seek them, to go after them with all your heart, remembering simply this, that the best rewards are never found here. They're always found in glory. So if you want a life that will be richly rewarded and deeply pleasing to your Father, to the Son, and to the Spirit, you want to set your life not on all the comfort and all the relief and all the blessing you can have here, but all the reward that you can have there. Listen, we do not lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. Right now, Paul says, as the furnace of suffering gets hotter, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And here's the decision you have to make. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When suffering kicks up in your life, remember that God has good plans in it. Godliness, usefulness, faith in Him, heavenly rewards for you. All of that is what God is determined to do in your time of suffering if only you will suffer as a Christian. He'll make you more like Christ. He'll make you useful to other people. He will increase your faith, your trust in Him. He will set aside for you heavenly rewards because the good news I have for you, church, is this. Bad times do not change God or His purpose one bit. No suffering can change the good character of your heavenly Father. His purpose is eternally and always the same, to make you godly, to make you like the one who died for you, your Savior, Jesus Christ, and that means that God will use your bad times to do all kinds of good things. So if you're hurting, I'm not telling you hang in there. I'm telling you hang on to Him. Pick your vision up just a little bit higher See the shore of heaven just ahead of you, and you will have the fullness of your reward. On July 4th in 1952, a great American athlete named Florence Chadwick set out from Catalina Island. 
She was determined to set a record that was previously unthinkable. And as great a swimmer as she was, people didn't know if Florence could achieve it. She wanted to be the first woman to swim from Catalina Island to the California shore. Unfortunately, the day she chose to do it were some of the worst, foggiest, coldest conditions that our coast has to offer. She had a lot of support, including her own mother in a boat beside her, and Florence Chadwick swam for 15 solid hours before not being able to see in those daunting, dangerous conditions sapped her will, and in spite of her mother's protestations, she gave up and got back in the boat. Once she was in the boat and they sailed safely in the little space and the little distance that remained, she discovered, to her disappointment, that she had been less than a half mile from making it to the coast. At the press conference, she said, I'm not making excuses for myself, but I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. A few months later, she tried it again. Once again, California did its thing. The conditions were identical. But she made it. And not only made it, she beat the record of the previous swimmer, who was a man, besting his time by quite a bit. How did she do it? In identical conditions, she visualized the shore and kept swimming, not because of what she could physically see, but because of the vision of the California coast she kept firmly in her mind as she kept swimming. My invitation to you is to remember that this world is not our home. This is not the end of us. Jesus said in John 14 that he had gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us so that where he is, we may be also. No matter how much you're hurting, see if you can pick up your head just a little bit and see your Savior and see the shore and keep moving forward because God really will use your bad times to do all kinds of good things. Let's pray together. If you're hurting right now, could I just invite you, Christian, to talk to Jesus about it? Ask him to make you more godly. Make you a useful blessing to other people. Maybe the point is to teach you to trust him. Maybe the point is that it, it really does count. It really, be, it really will be to your reward if you navigate it as a Christian. If you don't know Christ, that comes first. That's most. It's not a moment for you to think of reward. It's a moment for you to think of his salvation, of him being willing to give you the full forgiveness of your sins if you'll just give up on trying to save yourself and trust him. Father, we're all in different seasons, but you can keep track of each of us as if we were, Lord, the only person alive. Your power, your love, your wisdom is that great. So I pray, God, that you would comfort those who suffer, that we wouldn't waste a minute in the school of suffering, and that someday, Lord, we will be able to rejoice, first here on earth when we see what you've done, as Paul did, and later in heaven much more when we see the reward that has accumulated because we trusted you enough to go to you with our pain. Bless us, Lord, and as we conclude this service and move, Lord, to a time of 
prayer and reflection and thanksgiving for the year of ministry that has just transpired. We pray that you would keep us faithful. In Christ's name, amen.